You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Cities face massive challenges as they move into the next part of the 21st century. Everything from poverty to income inequality, gentrification, and climate change all demand big and innovative solutions. National Geographic is devoting its entire April issue to the ways that we not only live in these cities, but conceive and design urban areas. Joining us now to talk more about this issue is Robert Kunzig. He is a senior environment editor at National Geographic magazine and author of this month's feature story, Cities of the Future, Rethinking Cities. Robert Kunzig, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So when we think of uh, National Geographic, a lot of us think of stunning photos and natural landscapes. Why dedicate an entire issue to something that's nothing like that at all, cities? Well, our, we are known for our wildlife photos, for sure, but um, our motto has long been the world and everything in it, and uh, cities are really in the, in the, what's in the world today. More than half of the people on the planet live in cities. We passed that milestone maybe a decade ago, and it's a huge change over the past century. I mean, in 1900, uh, it was perhaps 14 or 15 percent of humanity lived in cities we were in we were a farming species and now now we're an urban species and so the what national national geographic's you know biggest focus is how we live on this planet and what kind of impact we have and in the future that is going to depend hugely on how well we design our cities yeah um so let's talk about some of the challenges that cities face right now what what did you guys find yeah. Well, my uh, I wrote sort of the biggest feature article there. Uh, it's a varied issue, I should say. It's, excuse me. It's we have everything from uh, a writer and photographer taking a walk across Tokyo and exploring the culture there. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, and we have a story about uh, rats in cities around the world too. But the, the <laughs> what the topic I which is which are just a whole interesting uh, story in and of itself. But the topic I focused on is really urban design, and I would say the main. Uh, and I and I went to cities. I went to Atlanta and Los Angeles and Bay Area. I went to China and spent a few weeks knocking around the giant cities there. Um, and I would say the main takeaway really is that in the 20th century, we really got one big thing wrong. We let cars rule how we hmm. laid out our cities. And we we basically let them sprawl all over creation. And now, um, when we think about cities of the future and what we want them to be like, um, we're not designing something, some utopia from scratch. We have this legacy to deal with, and that's the real challenge. So, so you say something like that, that we let the automobile ruined cities, and you realize you're talking to someone. I'm talking who, to the Motor City. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking to someone who lives in and is from Detroit. Yes, and let me say right away, I love my car. This is not about demonizing cars. I mean, I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. I'm 60 years old. I turned 60 uh, last year, and um, for my birthday, my wife said, what do you want? Do you want a big party? I said, no, 
I want to take a road trip. So we, <laughs> we got in our car and we drove for a week around Kentucky just seeing where the road would take us. So I oh, get wow. it. It's, this is not about demonizing cars. Yeah, well, the but... problem is, is when we let it cars be the only option. We're, the problem is being trapped in our cars and people being trapped in that kind of life when they don't want to be. So this is about cities should give people choices. Yes. I mean, and I have to say that even here in Detroit, we have begun to think about that. This is a city that, that more than any other, perhaps, was built around the concept of the car and ease of personal transportation. As the city changes, as population changes, as culture changes, we're even starting to reconsider some of the things that we did, some of the choices that we made, these very, very wide eight to ten line, uh, lane boulevards that, that, that cut up our city, the the freeways that we built, all of those things have an effect on people's lives. And in the 21st century, you're absolutely right. That looks different than it did 100 years ago. Yeah, and it, it, it looks different. It looks different. Um, I mean, if you think about two distinct demographics, I, I, I don't know a lot about the details of Detroit, but I imagine one of the challenges now is is attracting that sort of, you know, young, hip, high-talent people to come come work in the industry, IT-type people. Well, the younger generation, uh, you know, they're looking for an urban lifestyle. They're looking for for that feeling of dynamism and the ability just to, you know, live in a walkable city. But on the other end of the spectrum, people, baby boomers like me, empty nesters who have, you know, lived a suburban life and found it great for raising their kids, but now the kids are gone. And you think about, well, what's the future going to bring for us? There comes a point when cars are really not the ideal solution. I bet a lot of us have faced this with our own parents. It's like, when's the moment when you realize things are just not working? It's like, well, she can't drive anymore. So what do we do? You know. So those are just two examples of, uh, you know, Suburbs and the single-family homes in the suburbs can be wonderful places to live, but we went so whole hog into that one model that we don't have enough choices now for other people. Hmm. Uh, You explored Atlanta's Beltline, which you mentioned, this 22 miles of continuous walkway that connects different parts of the city. Talk about how that has changed that city and changed the approach to the thought about cars versus pedestrians versus bikes. Is it is it having the intended effect? And is that an effect that other cities are are looking at and, and trying to emulate? I, th- I think, yes, but it's er- it's early days. I think that's a really inspiring project. It's not. Uh, so just to to uh, your readers may not. Uh, sorry, you're <laughs> I have readers. You're a print guy too, right? Your listeners uh, may not. I am a print guy. Yeah, your (laughs) listeners may not be familiar with the project. So Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, which is, by the way, I'm sure every bit as sprawling as uh, Detroit, uh, maybe more, um, uh, was built around uh, railroads uh, in in the late 19th century, and by the late 20th, it had this essentially this loop of rail lines around it that were no longer used; that had been abandoned. And a, and a young guy named Ryan Gravel, an urban designer, he was doing his master's thesis at Georgia Tech, and he had just spent a year abroad in Paris, by the way, grew up in the Atlanta suburbs, went to uh, 
Paris. Grew, grew up, he told me, I think, you know, stuck in traffic on I-285 <laughs> and went to Paris and literally discovered what walking in a city is like. And he came, he decided, he thought about leaving Atlanta. He decided to come back and help change it. And so the Beltline was his idea. And, and it's essentially, you take those 20, that 22 mile loop of abandoned rail lines and you make it first into a walking and a biking trail so that people can use it. Uh, then, but ultimately the idea is to have it be a streetcar line right around the city. Now it is only just begun. There's no streetcars yet, although Atlanta has plans to build a few miles on the Beltline line in the coming years. Uh, and they've got about maybe a third of the 22 miles are now open. And where they are open, it's already having a, a catalytic effect. I mean, the, the on the east side of Atlanta, in an area uh, near Ponce, Ponce de Leon Avenue, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's where I think you, you see a lot of the the biggest development, and so the, what's happened is, is people start to use the trail, which it would have, which had just been, you know, the picture abandoned rail lines with fences and weeds and like people the city's backs are turned to this thing, and it's a big divider. Now the city is turning to face this trail. People are building apartment buildings and loft apartments. There's an old uh, Ford. A Ford plant right on the Beltline, right opposite something called the Pont City Market. There's a Ford plant where they built some of the first uh, Model Ts in the South back in the 20s. Um, that's now lofts. And so, if you for a few miles there on the east side, you walk down this trail, and it's you know it's apartment buildings. There's restaurants opening. It's 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 leading to a economic revitalization of that strip. Now, the big challenge is going to be, does that happen in other parts of the city that really need it? The east side of Atlanta is the more affluent side. It's near Emory University. And, um, but the, there are other parts of the city that really need that economic vitalization. And they, and they need not just a walking and a biking trail. They need a streetcar that will connect them to jobs downtown or connect them to the greater metro system, MARTA, that, that, that Atlanta has. So, and that's going to, will the city follow through? I, I hope so. It looks like they're, they've, got, they've got some ambitious plans. Um, you asked, I'm sorry, I'm going on too long, but you asked about uh, whether other cities are looking at it. Sure. Well, earlier this week, I was talking to uh, one of your colleagues in, in Miami, and they told me they're starting a project there. They've just broken ground on a project called the Underline, which is a 10-mile uh, bike and walking trail under, it's sort of under an elevated expressway that cuts through uh, Miami. Mm. And so I think they, I think they were definitely inspired by the Beltline. My guest is Robert Kunzig. He's a senior environment editor at National Geographic magazine, author of this month's feature story, which is titled Cities of the Future, Rethinking Cities. National Geographic is dedicating its entire April issue to this idea of cities, how we live in cities in the 21st century and how those cities might need to change to make that life a little more uh, accessible and pleasant. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, uh, 313-5. 1019 is always the number on the phones. Tell us when you're traveling around Detroit and the suburbs, what do you see that makes you wonder about the way we've designed the places we live? What do you wonder about? What are the things that make you say that makes so much sense? What are the things that make you say that makes no sense? What are the things you think we need to do in our built environment? 
to make life here easier? What are the things we need to do to make sure we're not destroying our natural surroundings? Again, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Talk about how you experience Detroit physically with us and how you think we could all experience it physically better. Uh, You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we go to the phones, Robert, I want to talk a little about how these questions of the physical environment bump up against other challenges that cities have. You, you, You talked a little about how in Atlanta, the, the question of transit and getting people to jobs is sort of rubbing up against this idea of the Beltline. But the cities have all kinds of challenges with poverty and gentrification, of course, racial history and, and racism that exist today uh, are, are, are things that cities are dealing with as well. Are you seeing those things creep into the conversations about the built environment? I, I, yes, definitely, because I think there's there's a phenomenon uh, these days. We it's called the suburbanization of poverty. I, I hmm. imagine that might be an issue in Detroit. It mm-hmm. certainly is a big issue in Atlanta, and that is as as you know, we 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 go through these big arcs of history where in the '60s and '70s we essentially abandoned the inner cities and poverty was concentrated there. But now, over the past couple decades, this cities are becoming a little trendy again. And so they are gentrifying, which on the one hand is good because they're being rebuilt, they're being revitalized. But on the other hand, it's bad because the people who were living in the inexpensive housing there are being forced out. And and where that collides with what I was talking about earlier is you, if, if poverty is suburbanized and if there's no decent transit system, then, you know, then it's even more isolating and more challenging because you're farther from farther from services uh, in the suburbs. You're farther from jobs, and cars can be expensive. Um, so it it in a way that development only increases the necessity for binding the the this fragmented urban environment that we've allowed to develop for for tying it together with good transit. It should be. Transit is something that that is it's not just for the poor, and that's actually a key point. It has to be something that serves everybody and when it, when it's there, it can really i think help the economic development and so here in Detroit, we have a new mode of transit, I suppose you'd call it we have a, a streetcar that uh, that runs up Woodward Avenue, our main artery here in the in the city, and the conversation about Building that line, the conversation about paying for that line really did bump up against questions of equity. Lots of people said this is a rich guy's train for rich people. A lot of people, Mm -hmm. since it's open, have said this doesn't help with the transit problems that we have citywide. Uh, I I wonder if if in Atlanta those are some of the same kinds of conversations they're having about transit. It's interesting that, that you think about transit being about access and opportunity, especially for people, obviously, who don't have cars. It seems like in the modern context, sometimes it is about, or people think it's about, uh, uh, wealthy people and and play spaces as opposed to utility. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I did hear similar conversation a little bit in Atlanta. There, I mean, it's a question of what do you prioritize. And so Atlanta is making significant investments in public transit. I think the MARTA has a something like a $2.7 billion expansion plan. But one of the first things they're doing is building a streetcar line out towards Emory University, again, on the affluent east side. And there are critics who say, you know, you should have been focusing on the underserved communities first. So that is a big issue. And another issue, I mean, I love streetcars. I, I um, spent part of my childhood in cities <laughs> where riding streetcars was normal. But um, it, the, the thing about them now is they're relatively expensive. And so I, I can't speak to the, the one in Detroit. I'm hoping it's going to have a great effect on the on the city but um, in terms of the future and in terms of the sort of the goal of having a dense not just one line but a dense web of transit that serves the whole sprawling city streetcars are quite expensive to do and there's you know you might a lot of people would say that a better option are you're really building out your bus system with but there's there's an option called bus rapid transit which is I don't know whether that's being considered in Detroit, but that's that is a much um, less expensive option. Buses running on dedicated lanes on on those big eight lane boulevards mm-hmm. you mentioned, yeah. and then down the road. And this is what's really kind of exciting about technological developments is we have these this, these driverless car technology that is coming at us fast and is definitely going to have a big effect on cities. If that could be converted to driverless buses cutting the costs of those and using, you know, smart technology to have, to sort of target, to think, think of something like in between a bus and, a, and an Uber pool, you know, where you have little vans taking groups of people who are going to the same place and doing it relatively quickly um, on dedicated lanes. That's, that's an option that I discuss a little bit in the article that could be coming that would be a less expensive way for sprawling cities now to build out their transit network once yeah once the technology is perfected of course right right of course that's always key all right we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue our conversation with robert kunzig about cities and the future of cities stay with us and stay with us on the phones ken and troy jason and bloomfield we'll start off with you when we get back if you want to join them 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones tell us about how you experience the physical space we have here in detroit and southeast michigan tell us about spaces you love spaces that you think we get are getting right already also tell us about spaces Places where you think we could do better. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Robert Kunzig. He's a senior environment editor at National Geographic magazine, author of this month's feature story, which is titled Cities of the Future, Rethinking Cities. We're talking about the need to rethink cities in the 21st century, the early part of the 21st century, uh, all of the challenges that cities have that really require us to think differently about physical space in particular. Do we need 
all of the wide lane roads, for instance, that we have here in southeast Michigan? Do we need as many freeways as we have carving up the city and the suburbs? What about green spaces? What about walkable communities? Are those things that we ought to be embracing? And how do we do that, given that almost the entire concept of Detroit, like many other American cities, is designed around the idea of the car, of easy personal transportation. If you want to join the conversation, we want to hear what you think about our built environment here in Southeast Michigan. Tell us about the spaces where you think we're getting this question right, where it is nice to be, it is easy to get to. Uh, And tell us about the things that we're doing wrong, the things that we need to correct, and what you would like to see uh, policymakers embrace to make this a better community for all of us. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Especially, we'd love to hear from folks who might consider giving up their cars to make the built environment a little more pleasant. Imagine that here in Detroit, where we make most of the cars still uh, in this country. Um, uh, Would you give up a car? Would you say, I can walk or I can bike instead. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Ken in Troy. Ken, what's on your mind? Yes, yes, I would give up my car in a heartbeat. Oh, you would? Okay. <laughs> yeah, How yeah, would absolutely. you get around in Troy without well, a car? No, I don't know if I would stay in Troy. And that's, <laughs> that's the thing. My wife and I just vacationed in Europe, and we, we loved it there. Uh, we were in a number of cities, and they were walkable. And, and that's what we're considering, you know, is, is it, would it really be, make more sense for us as we age to get to a place where we can get to a restaurant, we can get to a store, uh, and then we can get on transit to be able to get to locations within the city or get to a, you know, get on a train and be able to get from city to city. Um, and, and that's, that's those, those are old cities. Mm-hmm. This, is the city of the future going to end up looking like the cities of the past is my question, um, because they, they were totally walkable. They were magnificent experiences, and, and I, I, I want that. I want to have that <laughs> in, as I age, because I want to be able to, to be part of a community and, and to, be, to be able to get around. Yeah, uh, great and, question. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would love to. And so my, my question is, is really, um, how do we help our, our leaders gain awareness of that as a really viable and vibrant life you know, style and, and option for us? And then, and then what can be done? I and mean, it's the same question you ask. What can be done to change the way that our cities are structured so that they become walkable and so that they become um, viable for people from the age of zero to 85 or 90? Yeah. Ken, I really appreciate the call. And the questions, uh, Robert Kunzig, uh, the the idea of Europe as an example, I think, is very interesting. Old cities there that still are more walkable than the newer cities that we have here that grew up in the 20th century. Are, are they models for us? Um, th- they are to some extent, and I agree with uh, Ken. I mean, I think in, in, in the respect of in one sense, we do need to go, the cities of the future do need to go back to the past, but we shouldn't think of it as some kind of nostalgia thing. Basically, for thousands of years, cities were walkable. That's what a city was. It was a place where people came together and lived in close proximity. And then in the 20th century, that changed. We, we blew that up for that model up for a while. And in the, the difference between the U.S. And, and Europe is just that we had the luxury of space and we had cities that weren't yet as grown up. 
Um, and so we we sort of established, and we had a new technology, a fantastic new technology, um, that made a new urban form uh, possible that that we now need to reconsider. So, uh, but they have sprawl in Europe. I mean, I went to, um, I didn't include it in this article. I'm going to write something online, but I spent some time in Hamburg, Germany. And um, they, their sprawl is, is tame by our standards, but they did basically allow after their war, you know, and which for the city needed to be rebuilt, of course, but they, they uh, allowed the inner city to sort of, um, devitalize and, and become just a business uh, district, and people moved out to the suburbs, and they blasted a big old six or eight lane road right through the center of Hamburg. Um, so it, it it happened there too, but not to the not to the same extent. Yeah, uh, Ken, I really appreciate the call and the question. Let's go to Brian in Detroit. Brian, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, hey, how y'all doing today? Good. How are you? All right. I was a, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, and growing up, we used to catch the bus downtown. It took like 20 minutes. I lived in Northwest Detroit, in Northwest Detroit by Mumford, and we catch the bus to Northland. It took like 15, 20 minutes. I remember that, the, Brian. <laughs> and waiting for the bus only took like, you know, a couple of minutes. It was buses running so regular, you can just catch them and get places. And then they just be, you know, in the 90s or whatever. They kind of destroyed the whole bus system of Detroit. Yeah, yeah. It's impossible to do what what you're remembering right now in in the city, and and that raises an interesting point as well, Robert Kunzig. That the idea that cities have gotten harder to live in over time because of the degradation of things like bus systems. It's not just our reliance on the car and the designs that favored the car, it's that we've pulled away from the things that made getting around easier. That's absolutely right. And I, I appreciate the, the, the question. The, the, uh, in, in this country, we've, we've come to see public transit as a kind of welfare, and we invest in it accordingly, grudgingly. And uh, you, you, the response to, a, you know, to the service is a little bad, so the ridership goes down, so we invest less. Um, and whereas really what you need to do is the opposite. People will ride transit if it's good. People, you know, if, you're, if it's going to take longer to get where you're going on a bus than in your car, and it's not going to save you much money, you're not going to take the bus unless you have to. Um, and so we you, transit to work needs to be fast, it needs to be ubiquitous, and it needs to be inexpensive. It needs to be invested in as a public good, just as we invest in roads and highways. I mean, no one questions that we need to invest in, in those. Um, it, so, you know, I, the, the situation your caller describes, I think, is, it, it can be seen in cities around the country, and it's sort of continuing to happen. Ridership is continuing to decline around the country. Hmm. Uh, again, Brian, thanks for the call. Let's go to Joey in Detroit. Joey, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Hey. Um, I was, I'm a Wayne, future Wayne State urban planning student, mm -hmm. so I think about this stuff a lot. Um, and my big question is how we use our existing rail line infrastructure um, to sort of model after Chicago's, how they like 
converted their um, old rail lines to like uh, the Metra or whatever. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there's like this patchwork of rail lines that are owned by different companies. And I just wondered how we yeah. move in a, a better direction. That's a that. great question. That's a really great question, Joey. And and uh, Robert Kunzig, just for reference, we, uh, like many cities, have a lot of old rail lines that are just not being used anymore. And if you put them back into service, you might piece together uh, sort of commuter kind of rail kind of things like like they have in, in places like Chicago. Is that something that we're seeing lots of other cities embrace? I don't know. You, you mean where the, where the rail lines are actually intact and yes. can be refurbished and reused? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that. I know in... Um, I, I can't say that I've seen that. I've seen abandoned rail lines get reused, mm-hmm. and I've um, in Los Angeles, which is going through uh, a major expansion of its transit system, uh, financed by by sales taxes that people have voted to impose on themselves a couple of times. Um, they are in some cases using, you know, they used to have a dense network of streetcars in mm-hmm. Los Angeles before the car took over. And in some cases, they are now building along pre-existing streetcar rights away. So that's happening. But I, I don't know that that's a very interesting idea. And I, if, if the, I would imagine the question would be, are the rails in good enough conditions? Do they, you know, fit modern technology? Right. Um, I, I just don't know. It but that, that would be a, certainly worth looking into. Yeah. Okay, Robert Kunzig, Senior Environment Editor at National Geographic Magazine, author of this month's feature story, Cities of the Future, Rethinking Cities. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great to have you here. All right, that's going to do it for me this week. I will be back on Monday, and I hope you will, too. Remember to give us uh, your support in the coming days. Uh, If we can raise enough money before the fundraiser starts on March 24th, it will help us cut down on the number of days that we are fundraising and interrupting the great programming that you love here on WDET. You can always do it at WDET.org. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our associate producers are Gus Navarro, Anna Marie Seisling, Sydney Spa, and Chris Williams. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. On Monday, we're going to talk with State Senator Peter Lucido about roads and other political news. So join us then. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station and community service of Wayne State University. I'll talk to you with you again on Monday.